join me in thanking United Voice Worship. It's a great job. I didn't know this building had a basement in it until I heard you tonight. I feel like such a little boy compared, oof, that was just wonderful. Thank you so much. Made me, for the first time in my life, sorry that I'm a tenor. Oof. Listen, I heard that several of you today went and visited the Malibu Farm restaurant that's down there on the pier and tried the new uh, Pelican Burger. Reports are that that pelican burger is really quite tasty, but the bill is enormous. Okay, I'm done. I'm done. I, uh, through the years, have collected some really great devotional guides that I keep in my office and in my home, and I'd like to read two sentences, just two sentences, from a very special book and a compilation the sentences are, it is natural for us to associate God with specific places like a house of worship or the city in which we grew up or a holy experience. We need to learn there is no place to which we may go, but God is there. There is no experience into which we can come, but God's companionship is possible. The guide uh, is entitled, Strength for Service to God and Country. It uh, was published, and there's an entry for all 365 days of the year. It was published in 1942. This is an original copy that I keep in a safe place. And it was distributed to men and women serving this country during World War II. It is sized to fit in a breast pocket or a coat. And I imagine that more than one saw service on June 6, 1944. This particular entry was written by Charles B. Tupper, of the First Christian Church in Springfield, Illinois. The message that God is not confined to a church building or other sacred space was important to those in landing craft and airplanes in defense of freedom on that day. And it's still a powerful message, isn't it? The Holy Spirit also plays a role in the fact that God fills all space in our lives, even when we try to crowd God out. I share that patriotic message with you today because, and I don't know that you know this, but this is the annual National Day of Prayer. First observed in 1775, it was made law in 1952 by President Truman. And through the years, and you may not be surprised at this, but disappointed, through the years this day has been controversial because some people think that it is a violation of the Constitution's separation of church and state. I think if I were to choose to violate the Constitution, this might be a very worthy cause. I also wanted to share the fact, in conjunction with this message, that Pepperdine was a proud and grateful and welcoming host to 291 veterans and 70 more dependents of veterans in this past year alone. I cannot tell you how much they add to our student body with their maturity, the depth of their faith, the sense of purpose to live honorably and well in service to others. I want to say to you, don't let our Malibu campus, our generally youthful appearance, except mine, of course, and our youthful disposition fool you. The students who populate our classrooms include those who have seen life at all levels, and many of them know what I mean, what, what it means to serve selflessly. On this National Day of Prayer, 
I'd like to read what the author offered. And each one of these devotional entries includes a prayer at the end. I'd like to read his devotional prayer at the end of this message. Our Father God, in the glad confidence that thou art everywhere and always our friend and helper, may make us so sensitive to thy presence that wherever we are, we may be sure that we are still with thee. Help us to know that in every day when we wish it so, thou art still our guide and friend. Our message written for May 3, 1942, and it's still meaningful, to, meaningful today, some 76 years later. Delighted to be with you this evening. Delighted to uh, share what I know is going to be a joyful uh, worship service this evening in which the Holy Spirit is invited and, and present. Tonight we will be uh, led uh, by Josh Kasinger and United Voice Worship. In just a moment, uh, Tian Dang will come and offer a prayer for the evening. He is a minister of the Hanford Church of Christ in Hanford, California, and then Josh Ross. And I sort of feel, Josh, like I've watched you grow up um, and, and in many ways on this stage. What a blessing to have Josh with us this evening. He's the lead minister at the Sycamore View Church of Christ in Memphis, Tennessee, married to Casey. And they have two boys, Truett and Noah. He's the author of three books, most recently, Reentry. He's the host of the Reentry podcast. He is also a recovering Texan. <laughs> and Josh, I married a recovering Texan. It's a long, hard road. <laughs> He's learning to thrive in Memphis with a church committed to restoring justice, opportunity, and dignity in Memphis and around the world. We're delighted to have Josh here this evening. I'd like to invite all of you to stand. Let's sing and let's prepare to worship with all our hearts tonight. All hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate fall before the royal diadem and crown him Lord of all. Bring forth the royal diadem and crown him Lord of all. Ye chosen seed of Israel's race, ye ransomed from the and crown him Lord of all to him all majesty ascribe and crown him Lord of all oh that with yonder sacred throne we at his feet may fall we'll join the and praise him, Lord of all. We'll join the everlasting song and praise him, Lord. 
worship the Father, worship the Father, worship the Father of glory. And let us worship the Father, worship the Father, worship the Father of love. Throw. And you are the sovereign I am and you 
Has everyone's cup just been overfilled this week? I mean, it's just flowing over, right? It's just flowing over. But tonight I thought it would be um, really appropriate for us to sing and sing a little bit in a different language, uh, in Spanish. And so we're going to sing this next song that uh, Randy Gill had written, one of our uh, friends and, and, and uh, loved ones uh, with this ministry and the Zoe group, uh, called entitled Closer. And we thought we'd give value and throw honor to the Lord uh, by uh, singing it bilingual. Sing along. I am weak, but you are strong. Jesus, keep me from moral. And I'll be satisfied as long as I walk of tools and snares if I falter Lord who
thousand stories of what they think you're like, but I've heard the tender whisper of love in the dead of night. You tell me that you're pleased and that I'm never alone. You're a good, good father. It's who you are. It's who you It's who you are, it's who you are, 
still as you call me, deeper still as you call me, deeper still into love, love, love. You're a good, good father. It's who you are. It's who you are. It's who you are. And I'm loved by you. It's who I am. It's who I am. It's who I am. Therefore, church, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has set us free from the power of sin and death. Amen? Amen. For the law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. So our God has done what that law could not do, that he sent his son in a body, in a body just like ours. And in that body, God has declared an end to sin's control over us by giving us his son as a sacrifice for our sins. Amen? Therefore, the just requirement of the law has been fully satisfied for us who no longer live according to the sinful nature, but we follow the Spirit. Now, those who are dominated by the sinful nature, they think about sinful things, but those who are controlled by the Spirit think about things that please the Spirit. If your mind is controlled by the sinful nature, it leads to death, but if your mind is controlled by the Spirit, it leads to life and peace. The sinful nature is hostile to God. It always has been and it always will be. In fact, those who are under the control of the sinful nature, they will never please God. But you are not of the sinful nature. You are of the Spirit. If the Spirit of God lives in you, and listen, church, if the Spirit of Christ does not live in you, you do not belong to God at all. But Christ does live in you. And because of this, even though our bodies will waste away and die because of sin, the Spirit is giving life to us because we have been made right with God. Amen? This is the word of God for you. The spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. And just as God raised Christ Jesus from the dead, he will speak life, bring life, give life to your mortal body because of the same spirit who lives in you. Therefore, church, you have no obligation to follow the urges of the sinful nature. For if you follow them, if you give in to dictates, you will die. But if through the power of the Holy Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the sinful nature, you will live. And all those who are led by the Spirit of God, they are called children of God. And it's because of this that we were not given a spirit that makes us into fearful slaves because we are no longer slaves, right? We were given God's Spirit when He adopted us as His own children. It's because of this tonight we can look up and we can say, Abba, Father. For it is God's Spirit that joins with our spirit to declare and to affirm that we are children of God. And if we are His children, we are heirs. Which means together with Christ, we become heirs who get a share in the glory of God. Amen? But if we want to share in God's glory, we must also share in Christ's sufferings. But church, what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory that awaits us one day. 
For all creation has been longing for the day when God will reveal his children for who they really are. Because against its will, creation was subjected to the curse of God. But now creation waits with eager hope for the day when it will join with all of God's people in glorious freedom from death and decay. Amen? Creation is groaning like in the pain of childbirth up until this present time. And we also groan even though we have the Holy Spirit in us. As a foretaste of our future glory, we groan because we long to be released and to be liberated from sin and suffering, right? We groan and we wait with eager hope for the day when our God will give us our full rights as God's adopted children, which includes our brand new bodies, which God has promised us. You received this promise when you were saved. But here's the deal. If you already had something, why would you hope for it? But if we hope for something we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently and confidently. So here's some good news. Some of you need this tonight. The Holy Spirit helps us in our times of weakness. For there are times we do not know what to pray for. There are times we do not know how to express ourselves to God. But it's the Holy Spirit who is interceding for us with groans that cannot be expressed with words. And our God who knows our hearts knows what the Spirit is saying. Because the Spirit lives to intercede for us in harmony with God's will for us. This is why God is working everything together. For the good of those who love him. Who have been called according to his purpose for them. Right? For God knew his people in advance. And God has chosen for them. God has chosen for us us to be like his son so that his son could be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And listen, church, those in whom God has chosen, he is called to come to him. And those in whom God has called, he is given right standing with himself. And those in whom God has given right standing, our God has given them his glory. So church, what shall we say about such wonderful things as these? If our God is for us, who could ever be against us? Since he did not spare his own son, but he gave him up for us. What makes you think God's not going to give us everything else? Uh, who's going to bring an accusation against us, against the people of God? It's no one because we have been made right with God. Who is going to condemn us? It's no one because Christ Jesus died for us. He was raised to life for us. And now he sits at the right hand of the throne of God, interceding and pleading for us. So church, who can separate us from the love of God? Does it mean God no longer loves us if we suffer heartache or pain or grief, persecution, tribulation, despair? No, remember the Bible says it's like we die a death every single day. We are like sheep that are being led to the slaughter. But no, despite all those things, despite any obstacle you could imagine or experience in your life, there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. This is why we are more than conquerors tonight, through God who loved us. Stand up, church. This is why overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loves us. For I'm convinced tonight, and I hope you are convinced too, that there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears about today, our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from his love. There's nothing in the sky above or on the earth below, there is nothing in all of creation that could ever separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.
The days of Elijah declaring the word of the Lord. And these are the days of your servant Moses' righteousness be restored. And though these are days of great trials, of famine and darkness and sword, still we are the voice in the desert crying and preparing the way. It's shining like the sun, and at the trumpet call, so lift your voice. It's a year of jubilee, and out of Zion's still salvation comes. And these are the days of Ezekiel, the dry bones becoming as flesh. And these are the days of your servant, David, rebuilding a temple of praise. And these are the days of the harvest. The fields are what? The fields always white in your world. And we are the laborers in your vineyard, declaring the word of the Lord. Behold, he comes, and riding on the cloud, is shining like the sun. And at the trumpet call, so lift your voice. It's a year of jubilee. And out of science, there is no God like Jehovah singing out. Come on. There is no God like Jehovah. 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 There is no 
Let the king of my heart be the mountain where I run, the fountain I drink from, oh, he is my song. Let the king of my heart be the shadow where I hide, the ransom for my life, oh, he is my He's a good God, sing it out. You are The king of my heart be the fire inside my veins, the echo of my days. Oh, he is my song. You are good, good Lord. You are good, good Lord. You are good, good Never gonna let us down, amen. Come on. And you're never gonna let, never gonna let me down. You're never gonna let, never gonna let me down. Cause you are good, good Lord. You are good, good Lord. You are good, good.
Romans 8 is good news. Romans 8 is good news for the broken, that the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. Romans 8 is good news for those who grieve, to know that our suffering is nothing compared to the glory that awaits us one day. Romans 8 is good news for those who have struggling prayer lives, that the Spirit of God can make sense out of our wordless prayers. Romans 8 is good news for those who feel unlovable, that we have been adopted as children of God. Romans 8 is good news for those who feel defeated, that overwhelming victory is ours in Christ Jesus. Romans 8 is good news for the person in this room who 340 days out of the year, you are confident that you are saved and you will be with God forever. But every few days or every couple of weeks, there are moments of doubt or confusion, or did my baptism take? It's good news that for those who are in Christ, there is no condemnation. Romans 8 is good news for the addict, that the Spirit of God delights in unleashing, liberating power upon people. Romans 8 is good news for those who live in victory, but it's also a challenge. The victory is more than a banner that we wave. It's a message that we share. Romans 8 is good news for anywhere in our world where there is tension, conflict, chasms, that God is zeroing in on those places, eager to unleash his redemptive power. Uh, I believe that when all is said and done and Jesus comes to make all things right, that there will be preachers and teachers who make it into heaven who have never preached through Romans 8 as a series. But I think they will be stopped at the door by the Apostle Paul. <laughs> and Paul will stop them and Paul will say, hey, this is not a heaven or hell issue. But man or, or woman, preacher, teacher, of all the teaching you did, no, no series on Romans 8? You did a six-week series on Jude, but no Romans 8. <laughs> you did a series on the minor prophets in the Old Testament tweet called Obadiah, but no Romans 8. You did an eight-week series called Fifty Shades of Heaven, but no Romans 8. <clears throat> I love Romans 8. Before I go any further, I'm so excited to be here with you. I'm so excited to dive into Romans 8, one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. But United Voice Worship, I just want to thank you for leading us tonight. Can we thank God for what they've done? <clears throat> and Josh, it was so great to partner with you. Um, Josh Kasinger and I, we were in the same youth group growing up. 20 years ago, we were leading devotionals in the youth group. And then an hour and a half later, we're toilet, paper, toilet papering houses of parents in our youth group. And it's, uh, man, to see how God has matured your heart <laughs> and how God is using you in his kingdom. I'm grateful. And Mike, thank you. Thank you. When I was a young 18-year-old coming into ACU seven or eight years ago, um, <laughs> you found me the first Sunday I was at Highland. You took me under your wings. And next to my dad, I don't know if there's another man who has meant more to me in my faith and my life as a husband, a dad, than you. Thank you for believing in me. You're the real MVP, man. I love you. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> as in-depth and beautifully and carefully written as Romans is, the Holy Spirit doesn't show up much until Romans 8. In fact, Romans 1 through 7, only four times is the Holy Spirit referenced and I don't want to footnote Romans 1 through 7 because there's a lot of really good stuff in there. But in Romans 8, I just want to highlight 
that I feel that Romans 8 is, is the piece that holds all of Romans together because Paul knows he's laying in front of this church all kind of theology and practice and he's trying to encourage and edify and bring together Jews, Gentiles, rich and poor. And Paul knows that if there is not a working understanding of the Holy Spirit in the life of the church, their witness is gone. Unity cannot happen. So in Romans 8, 22 times, there's not a chapter in the Bible where the Holy Spirit is mentioned more than in Romans chapter 8. A few years ago, I did about a 20-week series at our church on the Holy Spirit. And the reason I did it, it's a sermon series I wanted to do for a while. But for a few years before I did this series, I had people come up to me. Most of them were older people. And they would say, hey, Josh, one day can you do a series on the Holy Spirit? Because I no longer believe what I was taught about the Spirit growing up, but I have no clue what to replace it with. And how can we coach people, equip people, see people mature in our churches if there is not some kind of working understanding of the Holy Spirit in the life of our churches. Now, I, I think one of the problems is we are uh, products of the enlightenment. And a lot of times what happens is we want to know how something works and how the function is and how something was activated before we choose to live into the activation. But we are not in need of a perfect understanding of the Holy Spirit to live into its activation. We're in need of a working understanding of the Holy Spirit. I don't need to know how the engine of a car works, but I trust it, right? I don't need to know every function and, and, and the entire character and nature of the Holy Spirit to trust in the Spirit. In some ways, I feel that at the end of the 19th century, early 20th century, like, it was almost like the Pentecostals and the Charismatics um, hijacked or took hold of the Holy Spirit. And there were revivals and there were things going on where some crazy stuff was happening, right? People were speaking in tongues. Stories were being spread. There are people on the stage and there and are weird things happening. And, and women who were growing their hair real high, the higher your hair, the closer to God. It seems like what it was like, all right? And what we did as our movement and the evangelical world is it was almost like we were afraid to pick a fight with the Pentecostals or to sit down and try to talk through the Trinity. So instead, we were like, hey, we'll take the knowledge of God and salvation in Jesus, and you guys just take the Holy Spirit, and we'll call it a day. <laughs> now, that may be way too simplistic, and that's not accurate, but I don't think this is accurate, or I do think this is accurate. That in many of our churches, what we have done is we have made saying yes to Jesus essential for salvation, but saying yes to the Spirit as an option to transformation and sanctification. That you have got to say yes to Jesus. And I believe that with all of my heart, to be immersed and to confess his name. But we have made saying yes to the Spirit. If you want to, that's fine. And sometimes we wonder why people in our churches are not growing up in Christ. Why they are not being mature and we lay in front of them spiritual growth plans and here, put together a rule of life or a covenant of life and practice some spiritual disciplines. But if we are not equipping our people with a working understanding of the Holy Spirit, how does growth and sanctification and transformation ever happen? Um, I love when I look at the function of the Holy Spirit in the Bible. It seems that the Spirit is one, that when eyes are directed to the Spirit, the Spirit is quick to direct eyes to God the Father and Jesus the Son. That the function of the Spirit is to make much of Jesus. And the function of the Spirit is sanctification, transformation, to make sure the church is on a unified mission. One thing I love about the Holy Spirit is that the Spirit is an agent who is pulling people into a deeper place into God's heart and into God's mission. Back in January, I had a chance to go to Ethiopia with Compassion International. 
We went with about 35 other uh, ministers and a few spouses. And we woke up on Sunday morning, and we were just told, meet in the lobby at 10. We're going to go to an Ethiopian English-speaking church. And we just thought we were going to drive to a church where maybe 30 or 50 people were. We didn't know what to expect. We showed up at a warehouse where there were thousands. We were there five minutes early, and we could not find a place to sit. And that right there made me think, this is not how people do church. You don't show up early. People committed to Jesus don't show up five minutes early. We showed up five minutes early. The place is packed. Thousands of people. Worship service went on for three hours, and it was like the kingdom of God came. When I was there at one point, halfway through the worship service, the, the pastor of this church stood up and he said, Hey, I, I just I needed to stand up and bear witness to something God did this past week. He said, There's a village in a church outside of, uh, of um, the place where we were. And, and this pastor said they um, were committed to, to having clean water in their village. So they got together as a church and they began to pray and they began to dig. Now, for, for people in uh, places in Africa that are trying to dig their own water, it can be quite risky. Not that their bodies, something happens to their bodies, not that they die, but there is no guarantee that you're going to strike water. And the number in Ethiopia is, if we can make it to 45 meters, that is where we will know if we get water or not. And the church met, and others started to dig, and the church was praying to see if they, to hope that they could find water so that the village could have clean water. And they got to 45 meters, and there was nothing. And the church felt defeated, and they began to walk away. And as they did, one person said, hey, everybody, let's stop right here. Let's go back and let's pray and let's go one more meter. And let's just pray and let's pray the number 46 and let's see what God does. And they went one more meter and there was an overflow. And I heard this story and right there I began to sermonize in my head because that's what I do. My wife doesn't like going to movies with me because something will happen. And I'm like, baby, that is the power of formation or forgiveness. Give me your phone. I need to write down some notes. And she's like, can you stop sermonizing? Let's just watch something. But in the moment, I'm like, oh, oh my goodness, how many of us, how many of you have gotten stuck at 45? Your churches have been stuck at 45. And it may not be because you're bad people or you lost your moral compass. Life happens. We've been betrayed. Things have happened. And we're stuck at 45. And all God may want to do is send the Spirit into your life and in your church saying, hey, just come just a little more. Just a little further. Just a little further and see if there's overflow. And hear me out. This is not about like you work harder to get one more meter. It's that we trust the Spirit just a little bit more. And let's see what God does. And if we trust the Spirit a little bit more, God does not owe us an overflow, but we serve a God who chooses not to hoard all of his gifts. And he loves to unleash them upon his people and upon his church. It's 46. I think some of us should have prayer meetings in our churches, and we just call them 46. Let's go just a little deeper. I love Romans 8. It's probably my favorite chapter in the Bible now. I love the book of Romans. And I want to help preach Romans 8 within the context of what's going on in the book of Romans. Last June, my wife and I traveled to Rome. Uh, Every year we do a trip with no kids. We've been able to honor this. Our oldest will be 11 this Saturday. And we've honored this every year of our marriage. I know everyone cannot do this. But it's one of the best commitments that we have made in our marriage. We want our kids to know that there's once a year where mom and dad leave you behind. Because we are raising you to get up out of this house. We are together forever. All right. (laughs) 
Uh, and sometimes people come up to us and they're like, how can you leave your kids for more than one night? And it takes everything in us not to sarcastically laugh in the moment, but we want to be pastoral. So usually what we say is, it's not that hard. We pull up to my parents' house. We slow down to five miles per hour. We have taught the kids how to jump out the sliding door and do a roll in the grass. And we toss out their luggage and we throw up some deuces and we come back the next week. We went to Rome last June. We arrived in Rome at 9 a.m. And we knew just from traveling overseas that you do not go straight to bed. So we... we uh, we, we booked all these tours, so we went and we visited the Colosseum, and we're walking the, the roads of Rome, and, and around 5 o'clock, we ate some Italian food and, and put down some lasagna. By 6 o'clock, my wife was asleep. I'm not exaggerating. She slept from 6 p.m. until 11 a.m. the next day. You can do the math. Now, my wife would tell you, if you ask her, what is your hobby? She would say, well, one of my main hobbies is I love to sleep, all right? That's just what she likes to do. She slept from 6 p.m. to 11 a.m. She slept so long, by mid-morning, I began to roll her over every hour to prevent bed sores, all right? (laughs) (laughs) I went to sleep around 6, too, but I woke up at like 9, and I was wide awake. So I didn't know what to do. And then I started feeling the tug of God, and I picked up my Bible, and I started to read Romans. And I was in Rome reading Romans. I read all 16 chapters. And I was so moved at how the book of Romans was coming to life to me while I was in Rome that I left the hotel, and I just started to walk the streets of Rome. As I was praying through the book of Romans, walking the streets, just imagining what it was like. Now, don't think I'm all overly spiritual because I couldn't sleep later on that morning and I watched the entire movie of Gladiator too, all right? So I did Gladiator and all of Romans in, in, in one night. And just reading Romans, these things came out to me. Here are three things I want to give you real quick and then I want to unpack Romans 8 for us. When I re- read the book of Romans, here are three things that I think are so important and so practical and applicable for us today. And, and it's allegiance, navigation, and new community. So if you're taking notes, write these down. Allegiance, navigation, new community. Allegiance was on the line when Paul is writing to them. Because if you give your allegiance to God, you cannot give your allegiance to the emperor or the empire or to Rome. When you confess Jesus is the Lord of your life, you're also saying nothing else is the Lord of my life. I'm all in for who Jesus is. But allegiance was a major challenge for them. And allegiance is a major challenge for us too. Um, I love the church. I believe in the church. I believe the church is the hope of the world. I'm hopeful for the church. Here's one of my concerns is that we have people coming into our churches every single Sunday and they take communion and they sing the songs and they hear the messages. And then sometimes maybe before they even leave the parking lot or an hour later, they are on their couch and they are fully immersed in their Fox News addictions or their CNN addictions or MSN addictions. And it has become the primary lens that they engage all of the world through, even the gospel through. Thinking that in doing this, we are keeping up with reality and what is going on in the world, but failing to see that this has become idolatry for so many people who confess the name of Jesus. That the primary lens has become our favorite news source, and it's what we see everything else through, even the the gospel of Jesus. Allegiance to God means there's no allegiance to anything else. That we're all in for who he is. Also, Paul is writing to them, to the church of Rome, about navigation, like how you navigate life, because how do you navigate kingdom life while you're walking Roman streets? 
And Paul was equipping the church not to be a place that's separated from the world or disengaged from the world, but to engage the world as the spirit-filled people of God. Because Paul knew what we know and what we're trying to act out in many of our churches is that the church is at its best when we give up home field advantage. And we go play out kingdom life on other people's turf to see what God is up to in the world. So how do we navigate kingdom life? Uh, because I think Paul was laying in front of the people what we need to. Is that spiritual transformation, inward trans- transformation also means that we take cultural awareness very seriously. How we navigate the streets. What's going on in our culture. But making sure that our primary lens is the gospel of Jesus. If our primary lens was the gospel and we were spending more time in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John than Fox News, CNN, NPR, and we're trusting in God more, who knows what would happen in our churches. There's allegiance, there's navigation, and there's new community. I can't read Romans anymore without thinking about the Jew-Gentile struggle, that it was primarily a Jewish church, and then Jews are kicked out of Rome in AD 49, so it became a Gentile church, and five years later, the Jews come back into Rome, and they're like, man, what's up? Things have changed, and now you have Jew-Gentile tension. I think the book of Romans would be about three chapters long if it wasn't for the Jew-Gentile tension that Paul believed that Jesus died and rose from the dead to bring people together from all different walks of life. Now... I know people who are passionate about reconciliation and they care about it and churches who care about it, but here's how a lot of people care about it. I know a lot of people who are all for reconciliation as long as whoever the other is, is reconciled to their narrative. All right, so I have a narrative And I care about being reconciled, but this would work best if you become reconciled and you are grafted into my narrative. Oh, here we go. All right. So um, (laughs) uh, my entire life, I've been in predominantly white churches. And here's how it's usually worked in America. And I don't want to get into all of the reasons why, because we could talk about them. But usually in our time, it's been the white churches who have the resources. It's the white churches that have the newer facilities. And there are times where the white church has been fine with reconciliation and diversification happening, but we would really like for the blacks and the Latinos and everyone else to be reconciled and grafted into the white church narrative. Even though we don't know it's happening sometimes. Because here's, what, here's the deal with reconciliation. Reconciliation is not just about in taking someone where they are. It's also understanding the culture that has shaped them, the experiences that they have had, the history who has formed them into the person they are. So it's not just about the person in front of me and being reconciled to them and reconciled to each other. It's embracing everything that has made them who they are. So what happens in Romans 8, right after Romans 8 and 9 through 11, is the way Paul lays it in front of them is there's a Jew-Gentile struggle. And the image Paul uses is that there is the Jewish narrative that goes back throughout the, to the very beginning. And now the Gentiles have been grafted into the story of God, the Jewish narrative. And what has happened in our time today is there are a lot of people in cultures who want to be the Jew in the story. To where whoever is the outsider is grafted into our narrative. But the thing for us, that if we embrace it, amazing things could happen, is none of us get to be the Jew in the story. It's Jesus' story, and we are all being grafted into his story. Now, as we are grafted into his story and reconciled into the narrative of Jesus, this doesn't mean that cultures no longer matter. It means they become more beautiful. And we embrace them for what they are. I love the book of Romans. I love Romans 8. 
And I just want to unpack a few things in Romans 8 for us tonight. And I want to begin just talking about the identity of the Spirit because I think this is on Paul's heart and it's what he's laying in front of them. Romans 8 is one of Paul's most articulate, well-thought-out, careful teachings of the Holy Spirit. And in Romans 8, Paul credits the Spirit with the resurrection of Jesus. And he credits the Spirit as the greatest adoption agency that has ever existed. It's the Holy Spirit who is the prayer warrior advocate. And it's the identity of the Spirit that he's laying in front of this church to know who the Spirit is so they can have a working understanding of the Spirit. But one thing he lays out at the very beginning of Romans 8 is that there is this tension that exists between the spirit and sinful flesh, between the sinful nature. Because we have learned, and as I've walked with young believers, they often become very concerned and sometimes even guilt-ridden because conversion doesn't seem to settle the issue of sin entering into our lives and knocking on the door of our hearts. Did you think when you were baptized and you gave your life to Jesus, or I bet you've walked with someone who has, and they came out of the waters, they confessed Jesus as Lord, they wanted to commit to a new way of life, thinking that the powers of darkness that knocked on their doors before would not be knocking on the doors of their heart after, and the powers of darkness keep coming, keep knocking. What we learn in our faith is that every day we have to say yes to Jesus, but sometimes saying yes to Jesus is also saying no to other things that are keeping us from Jesus. It's, there are mornings where I have to wake up and it's like I'm looking at Jesus and I'm like, Jesus, I'm saying yes to you today, but just hang on just a moment because before I say yes to you, I need to see, say no to some of these other things and then I'm turning, I'm, all, I'm coming for you and Jesus helps me to even know how to say no to these other things. I love how Romans 8 plays out because verse 1 is... There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. That it's the work of God saving us. But Romans 8.13 makes it sound like we have a choice. That it's through the power of the Holy Spirit that we begin saying no to the deeds of darkness. And we hold those together as we form our theology. The Spirit is a life-giving agent, a liberating agent, which means we're no longer held in bondage. But a lot of times we do live like we are, right? But there's this major shift in Romans 8. And it's from the spirit and the tension between the spirit and the sinful nature to the beauty of the spirit of God and the status the spirit of God gives humanity. That we become children of God. And being children of God means that we get to wear God's name, but there's also great responsibility and great privilege that comes with being God's children. And it's privilege that has to be nurtured. It is privilege that has to be properly nurtured. For the identity of the Spirit begins to create and cultivate in us a deeper trust for God. And think about what this meant for the people of Rome. Because anytime they left the doors of the church and they're walking the streets of Rome, they don't know what could happen to them. Yet it's the Spirit that was giving them strength to carry on and carry through. No matter what happens in life, they were being taught to trust the Spirit. A few weeks ago, I was flying home to Memphis on a Saturday night, and, and something happened I, I'd never witnessed before. I had a window seat this night, and we were coming close to Memphis, about 45 minutes away, and I looked out, and I witnessed a lightning storm. Now, I've been on planes before where I could see thunderstorms in the distance, but usually I, it's like I could look out, and I could see the cloud, and then I could see the, the lightning bolt from the cloud all the way to the ground. It's beautiful, but this time, we were flying over the cloud. I had never witnessed this before because I could not see the lightning bolt. I could just see lightning going off every few seconds, and it was just lighting up this cloud underneath me. It looked like a war zone. It was majestic. It was beautiful. But then it hit me. 
I think this is so beautiful right now, and I wish I could take a picture, but you can't really take pictures in the dark out the window of a plane. Um, but then it hit me, and, and I had this restlessness in my spirit and in my body because if we are here and the thunderstorm is here, we got to get to Memphis, which is down here. So maybe that's why that pilot just came on and said, we have asked the flight attendants to discontinue service for the remainder of our 40-minute flight. We're asking for people to keep your seatbelts on and to not get out of your seats for the next 40 minutes of the flight. If there's a pastor on the plane, can you come to the front and get on a microphone to pray over the plane? He didn't go that far, all right? But, but we were... And it hit, oh my goodness. And I knew the pilot wasn't going to take us through the eye of the thunderstorm, but somehow we had to get from here through the storm to land in Memphis. And there was nothing I could do but trust that this pilot knew how to fly a plane, navigate a plane, land a plane. And there are many of you right now, for you or for your church, that you were over a storm or you were right in the middle of the storm. And as much as we would love to call the shots and ask God to bless whatever shots we call, it is God, it's the Spirit of God who is flying this thing. And we are trusting that God knows how to fly it, where to fly it, how to land it, going through the storm. And we're trusting that God knows how to do this. The identity of the Spirit and knowing who the Spirit is helps us know who we are too. And as we become more aware of who the Spirit is and the function, character, and nature of the Spirit, in Romans 8, there is this new language that emerges. This is changing my life. There's this language that emerges, and it's a language of the groan. There's a lot of groaning in Romans 8. Creation groans. Humans groan. The Spirit groans. And the more I've read about this, this groan is not of despair. Though sometimes, I know some of you have offered up groans of despair. It's not despair as much as it is that something isn't right, something isn't right, and God is on the move. And we're, we're groaning, asking God to redeem what is broken. What I love about Romans 8 is it lets us know that if all we have in prayer is a sound, just a moment of silence, an utterance, it's an acceptable form of prayer in the presence of God. That the Spirit knows how to take a groan from your life and to make a connection with God the Father. Romans 8 talks about groans. Paul talks about groans as the groaning of, of childbirth. I think there's going to be some ladies one day in heaven who find Paul and they're like, dude, you couldn't just do one childbirth, you know, metaphor. You had to do multiple of them. You, had, you knew nothing about childbirth. Groaning like in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Romans 8, the groan of childbirth. I don't know if you've ever been in a hospital room when babies have been born. We have two kids. My wife has two. She, she birthed both, all right? Um, and, and I was in the room with her both times. One time my wife groaned so loud, it woke me up, all right? Uh, just joking. That's a Jim Gaffigan joke. All right, I shouldn't have used it tonight. All right. <laughs> I, especially our second child, it was, it was hard. Me and my, my wife, she was giving everything she had. There was the groaning. And, and in that room, it's groaning that we hope and pray has, has something great that comes from it. At one moment, she was in so much pain, the guy came in and gave her the epidural. And it's the only time... In our almost 16 years of marriage, in my presence, my wife looked into the face of another man and she said, I don't know who you are and I don't know your name, but I want you to know 
I love you. <laughs> I started sizing that dude up. I was like, if this guy responds with an I love you, man, it's going down right here, okay? <clears throat> a few years ago, I preached a, a series. I was doing a series called Intercession. I preached one sermon on Romans 8. And Eric Wilson, who's on staff here at Pepperdine, was on staff at Sycamore View with us in Memphis. It was before he left the, the Malibu of the Mississippi, which is what they call Memphis, to move to the Malibu down here. <laughs> nobody, nobody has said that, all right? It was just a joke. Eric came up to me after that sermon. He said, man, great job. But hey, if you ever preach about the groan again, you've got to read this book called Unspeakable Joy. And there's a chapter on the groan. And it's Barbara Holmes, and she writes about the black groan, the black moan. And she talks about how this is that sound that you hear when you're at black funerals or in hip-hop songs. This groan that comes from a deep place. And I was reading Barbara Holmes. And it came to my mind a few weeks ago when I preached a black funeral for a 42-year-old man who was burned in a fire. In the presence of hundreds of people. And I could hear this groan. It made me think about this. And what she talks about is that this was a, this was a language in the days of slavery. When Africans were put on slave ships. And they would purposely put people on slave ships who did not speak the same language so that they could not connect. But what the slave owners didn't know is that there was this connection with the black groan that became this universal language of the oppressed and those who were experiencing pain that held them together and connected them. So I heard Barbara Holmes talking about that and reading about it. And I interpreted that as if there was this language that had emerged in the days of slavery. Until I went to Ethiopia. And I was in this church. They went on for three hours, yet it was amazing. And at one point, the pastor stood up. And if you didn't know, Ethiopia, Christianity in Ethiopia goes all the way back to the first century. 2,000 years of it. And the pastor stood up and said, we have a group today. We happened to be there on a day where it was an African revival, representatives from almost every country. And he said, we have a tribe here today, and they are here to perform a tribal dance that has been going on in the life of their church since the 7th century. Now, right there, I got really excited. But then there was also this piece of me that was like, I definitely grew up in white church. Because we didn't do tribal dances where I grew up. This wasn't a phrase that we used. You could get in trouble in the church where I grew up for giving the sway during a worship song. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> because we knew the progression. The sway may lead to lifted hands, which leads straight to holding snakes. That's just how it goes. <laughs> the reason that we believed that clapping was a sin wasn't because we began at that point. It was that clapping sounded so awful in the life of the church. It was like, that's got to be from hell, all right? It cannot exist in this place. There's no rhythm in this place. <laughs> and this tribe stood up on the stage. And they had a tribal dance that went on for 25 minutes. And there were times where the pace was slow. And there were times the pace was fast. And then it would be slow again, and then fast, and upbeat. And there were times where you felt sorrow, and times you experienced great joy. 25 minutes of this, and all throughout the 25 minutes, there was the groan. And the groan came from parts when they were going, they were dancing fast, and it came in parts when it was slow. 
Romans 8 introduces us, if we have not already been introduced to it, to this language, a universal language that holds Christians and humanity together all over the world. There's groaning and there's waiting. It's the sound of the oppressed from those who experience deep pain. And if we take Romans 8 for what it is, the Spirit solidifies that groaning is okay. And and if you read Romans 8, the Spirit of God is not just liberating you from groaning. The Spirit of God is taking how you groan and is placing it in the presence of God our Father. To groan is eager expectation. That maybe there occasionally are groans where there is uncertainty or great anxiety, but groans in the life of the church and in our lives is also this confident expectation that God is on the move and God's going to do something. In Romans 8, the Spirit groans and the Spirit activates and participates in groaning and in liberation. Creation joins in the groaning. Humans join in the groaning. And church, I want you to hear this. God, God, help us hear this. The Spirit of God on this side of eternity is not here to liberate the church from groaning. The Spirit of God is here to teach the church how to groan better and more faithfully, how to embrace groaning, how to, how to groan better and more faithfully and embrace it and receive it for what it is. The Spirit of God is increasing how the church groans and what we groan over. Because a lot of times in our churches, let's be honest, someone groans and we go in the other direction because we don't know what to do with it. And in a lot of our churches, we script how the worship services go, where we have very few transitions or or transitions where we allow any opportunity for the Spirit of God to do something that we have not already planned. And we know if we go five or ten minutes over, we will get emails about going five or ten minutes over. And there are times I finish a sermon and I'm sitting there and we still have people come forward for prayer or responses. And there are times where I finish a sermon and in my head I'm like, oh my goodness, we're already running late. God, please don't move in someone's life today to bring them forward. And then I begin to repent in my spirit of how bad that is. But how, what are the places in our worship services and in our churches where we give people space to groan because we don't need to be churches that teach about the power of God and then encourage people to go and just go groan at lunch somewhere. Go groan in your house. But how do we as a church learn to embrace groaning? Because there are people groaning in our church every single Sunday. Not knowing if it's a place where they can let out a sound. Hashtag me too and hashtag church too. Where people are experiencing deep forms of pain. But if you take a groan seriously and you choose to step into it, you have to go beyond the groan to the symptom and the infection. And it can get really messy. It can be scary and it can be nervous. But the church is called to get frustrated and concerned over chaos, some holy frustration. And in our church's groans are not to be silenced, but to be embraced. For sometimes it's all we know to offer up, right? There have been so many times people have come into my office or I've been at lunch or coffee with someone and they begin to cry. And almost every single time, man or woman, almost every single time, when people cry in my presence, they apologize for it. They say they're sorry. And I can count on one hand how many people have not done that. And I begin to respond to people whenever they cry because they're sharing something going on in their lives. I begin to respond sometimes with, I don't accept your apology because there's a release going on in your life right now. And then it makes me think, what have we done as a church? We've made people think that they need to apologize when they cry or get emotional. There's, there's an outpouring in their life of something that's going on, and they just need help. When the Spirit of God reveals 
the Spirit's identity, we become more aware of who we are. And this language emerges. And it's a language a church needs. As the Spirit of God reveals its identity and the groan, uh, what the groan does is it prepares us for a unified, victorious mission where we are more than conquerors because of God who loves us. Overwhelming victory is ours because of Jesus who loves us. The church is called to be unified on this great mission. And for the people of Rome, the mission was understanding that the way we love each other as Jews, Gentiles, rich and poor becomes a witness to the world of what God has done and what the resurrection of Jesus has launched. I want to help you see tonight not just how Romans 8 can bless the church. I want you to see Uh, who the people were and who the church was made up of when they heard Romans 8 for the first time. The power of reconciliation was being preached by Rome, I mean by Paul, to this church in Rome. There was one Sunday, this was about 11 years ago, I was preaching on reconciliation in a church. And it was the only time I came home after church. And usually I come home and I I see my wife and I ask her what she thought of the sermon. And and this was the only time in my preaching career my wife came up to me and she she was mad. And she stuck her finger up in my face and she said, don't you ever tell that story in a sermon again. So my wife's not here, so here's the story, all right. She's on live stream. What what can she do? Uh, She she knows. (laughs) So the story went that I had heard there was a church where there had been a couple where a man was on a business trip. And he ended up embracing and kissing another woman, one of his coworkers. And he called, he immediately stopped, called home. His wife said, you need to get on a plane and come home. And he didn't know what he would receive. He didn't know what it would be like when he got home. And he got home and his wife and his kids were there to embrace him. And then they went to the house. And after getting the kids in bed, his wife had prepared communion for them. And they took communion together. And then she took his hand and she led him to the wedding bed. So I told that story in the church. And I kind of told it in a way. She wasn't mad that I told the story. It was how I told it. Because I told the story in a way where it was like, hey, if you'll take communion, if your marriage is struggling or if there's reconciliation that needs to happen or where it needs to happen in the life of the church, if we'll just take communion and take it seriously, then reconciliation will become something that's really easy. So my wife said, Josh, don't ever tell the story the way you told it. Now, here's what she said. Now, first and foremost, the reason you don't need to tell that story again is because if you ever lay your lips on another woman, (laughs) communion will be the last thing waiting on you when you get home. She said, there ain't going to be no broken body of Christ up in here, all right? (laughs) Jesus' body ain't going to be breaking, you know what I'm saying? Jesus' blood ain't going to be what we're, we're celebrating in, in this place. And there's, there's definitely not going to be me taking you by the hand, leading you to some wedding bed or a marriage bed. That's not happening. And she made this one statement. She said, Josh, when you talk about reconciliation, do not make it out to sound so easy. Because reconciliation in a marriage or between ethnic groups is hard work. Do you guys mind grabbing that table and grabbing a chair? I want to invite three people of United Voice Worship to come and join me. I want to help talk through one thing, and then we're going to sing our way out of here. So as I stated earlier in Romans 8, in the book of Romans, there's this Jew-Gentile struggle where it had been predominantly a Jewish church. Jews are kicked out of Rome. 
Gentiles take over, Jews come back five years later, and you can just feel tension in leadership and in every facet of life. This is a struggle for us today. All right, so here, one of you come right here. <clears throat> Here's what we have. We got Sarita, Josh Gaysinger, got my boy Nick here. Let's make sure you don't fall out of that chair. Got a water bottle. All right, and I want you, I do not want you to move your head. I want you to look right at that water bottle. Josh, I want you looking right there. Nick there, Sarita right there. And I want you to tell me one at a time, what do you read? Since 1894. Since 1894. It's been quenching after verse. Amen to Arrowhead. Quenching thirst since 1894. What do you see? What do you read? A local favorite, Arrowhead. 100% fountain spring water. Established 1894. All, you had like a radio voice going after that. That's great, man. I love it. Kay Singer, what do you see, man? Well, my side is saying water quality. And for more information, contact one 800 8 Don't give out the number. We may not have rights oh, to do that, okay. all right? So, <laughs> all right. So you're looking at it. All three of you are looking at the same bottle. Yeah. And you all three said three different things. Right. And like we can look at the same people. We can look at the same church. We can look at the same issue and come away from it with three different realities or convictions. So in the Jew-Gentile world in Rome, here they are in the life of this church, and they're looking at the same God, reading some of the same books, being grafted into the Jesus narrative, yet there's tension in the life of the church because when the Jews came back, I think the Jews were saying stuff like, what do you mean you don't end worship services anymore with the Lord bless you and keep you? That's how we always did. And then you have them on the other side, and the Gentiles are like, you need to get used to two words in the life of this church, Hillsong United, all right? And, and, and you have like, man, we used to do sermons after communion, but now you've switched it up. So there's all this tension that's going on. So tell me this. I want you to look. Uh, which one of you were right when you were reading? <laughs> you were right. I'm a very good reader, so I was definitely right. <laughs> you can read, all right? Were you taught at the young age? Yeah. Well, I've got my master's in conflict resolution, so <laughs> let, me, let me work through this, all right? That, so that, that helps right there, right? So you have a master's degree. Thanks for throwing that out there, Josh. All right, so we're looking at the same bottle. Here's the only way we can see what other people has read is that, Nick, you've got to move your head to come over from another angle to see it from someone else's perspective. This does not mean that you have to sacrifice all your convictions. What it does mean is that when it comes to the church, understanding what Black Lives Matter is, is that we don't sit around with our five white friends at breakfast talking about a BLM narrative. Is that we sit with a friend, a person of color, and we ask, hey, I've, to me, Black Lives Matter means shutting down bridges. But is there a greater narrative that I need to hear? So when it comes to immigration or spiritual formation or the LGBTQ community, how do we move our heads to see it from someone else's perspective for the good of the church and the good of the community we're trying to serve so we can see a world the way other people see a world? Because we have been called as a church to a unified, victorious mission. I love how Romans 8 just brings all this through a crescendo. And I wanted you earlier tonight just to hear all of Romans 8 in one piece. Because a lot of times we grab Romans 8 like we grab refrigerator magnet verses, right? Like Romans 8, 1, there's no condemnation. I wanted you to hear all of Romans 8 together. 
because here's how I want you to go away from here, hearing Romans 8 tonight and maybe for the rest of your life, is that it was a church where people were probably in a living room. And they're sitting, maybe they were sitting around a table. Maybe they were in some, sitting on the ground, but there's Jews and Gentiles and rich and poor, and they're all in this community, and they're hearing Romans 8, and what they hear is something like this. What shall we say about such wonderful things as these? If our God is for us, who could ever be against us? This wasn't just about a person learning that they were a child of God. It's learning that they were children of God. That since our God did not just... Push Jesus, uh, since he did not spare his own son, but he gave him up for us. What makes you think God's not going to give us everything else? Who can separate us from the love of God? It's the unified church, understanding they are the victorious church, being called into a world that God is so eager to save. So I'm asking you right now as a church, can we just stand together? And I want us to stand. And I want you, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you, I don't know how comfortable you'll you, comfortable you are doing this, but I want you right now to begin thinking of how you can pray prayers of victory over the section where you are right now. How can we pray over each other tonight? And I just want you to zero in on whatever section you are, you're sitting in, that there's someone in your section who is living life right now in defeat. And it's not because they have lost their moral compass, or maybe it's not. It's that life has happened. Uh, and I want you to hear me tonight. Whenever we talk about victory in our churches, or as I am right now on this stage, victory is not the absence of pain. Victory is not the absence of sweat and blood. Any victory speech you have heard from sports to people who have won music awards, acting awards, they stand on the stage and they bear witness to hard work, sweat, blood, tears. It has been poured into it. Victory is not the absence of pain. And we stand tonight as wounded, scarred people, but we stand in victory. I just want to ask you tonight, will you just raise a hand in victory where you are? Some of you know you have aunts, uncles, grandparents who are rolling over in their grave right now, lifting a hand in church. But I want you just to raise a hand in victory. Because the word of God tells us that overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loves us. And that we are convinced that nothing can separate us from the love of God, neither death nor life, amen? amen, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears of today or our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from the love of God. There is nothing in the sky above or on the earth below. There is nothing in all of creation that can ever separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. And the whole church said, amen. amen. Sovereign in the mountain air, sovereign on the ocean floor, with me in the calm, with me in the storm. Sovereign in my greatest joy, sovereign in my deepest cry, with me in the dark, with me at the dawn. In your everlasting arms, all the pieces of my life, from beginning to the end, I can trust you. In your never-failing love, you work everything for good. God, whatever comes my way, I will trust you. Sovereign in the mountain air, 
My dear brother Josh, that was uh, powerful. I think we'll never forget your interpretive reading of, of Romans 8 in the beginning and the power of your word. Let's thank Josh again for that message. Yep, thanks. And uh, thanks so much to United Voice Worship. They'll be leading worship at all three of the keynotes tomorrow morning, so that's something to look forward to. Let's thank them for this evening as well. Yeah. On your way out tonight, uh, there will be book signings by Scott McKnight and David Holmes, Pepperdine's own David Holmes. We'd love to invite you to stop. Scott's book is called Open to the Spirit, and David's is Where the Sacred and Secular Harmonize. Uh, there are several late-night options tonight. There is a Zoe-led worship session, classes by Bobby Valentine, and one by Mark Love and Aaron Metcalf. And in addition to that, there's a session with our next-gen uh, winners. In the beginning, with this program that Jeff Walling led, about 100 people Young people submitted their five-minute sermons. A lot of coaches went through those. We narrowed those down. 25 came, uh, 24 came from 18 different states to campus. And uh, the four who won that contest are here tonight. They'll be preaching those short sermons. These are future leaders of the church. Jeff will be hosting it. And so we invite many of you to that. In addition, there'll be several receptions. You can read about those in the booklet. On your way out tonight, don't forget uh, if you have a check or a cash gift, drop those in the bucket for AWP. And in addition to that, uh, remember that there is pie and uh, coffee available in the Waves Cafe. Well, it's been quite an amazing night. Let's stand and close with this song. Come set your rule and reign in our hearts again. Increase in us we pray. Church, we pray.
changing hearts. You made us for much more than this. Awake the kingdom seed in us. Fill us with the strength and love of Christ. We are your church. We are the whole Sing it out, church. Build your kingdom. Come on. And build your kingdom here. Let the Awesome night tonight. We'll sing you guys out.